Today, we lit the fourth Advent candle, which symbolizes peace. And as we just sang a while ago, we, say, we, we celebrate peace. Because when Jesus was born, the angels sang, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests, according to Luke. And we celebrate Jesus as the Prince of Peace because we know, the Bible tells us, that Jesus has reconciled us to God by his death and resurrection. He has reconciled those who put their trust in him to God. But just like Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, we recognize we live in a world where peace is sorely lacking, both around the world, in our society, and perhaps for some deep within. And I think then you will find a point of contact with this passage in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 to verse 25. You see, Matthew tells us that, yes, the coming of Jesus, the coming of the Christ, was a time when peace was anticipated. But the coming of Jesus was for his earthly father, Joseph, not a time of peace, but rather of personal turmoil and distress. So let's read the text. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 up to verse 25. And I'll be reading from the NIV 2011. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, because G Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. Now, as you could see, Matthew's account, in contrast to Luke, which focuses on Mary, focuses us on Joseph and the way the coming of Jesus the Messiah turned Joseph's life upside down. Joseph had been engaged to be married to a young woman named Mary. Now, in that culture, to be engaged wasn't simply to give a, an engagement ring. To be engaged is to have gone through a 
lengthy process of legal negotiations involving dowry and with the parents, and, and that would mean that you were legally married. But you were in the one-year waiting period between betrothal and consummation. So you can imagine Joseph would have been busy with wedding preparations, perhaps preparing his house to receive his fiance, Mary, his wife. And if you were in his place, you could imagine his excitement, wouldn't you? I mean, we've got a couple of guys who just got married. They can imagine the excitement. They were there. But then, imagine how Joseph would have felt when his fiancée, Mary, was found to be pregnant. Now, that's scandalous. Practicing for the honeymoon is fornication. It is sin. And to make matters worse, Joseph knew he had nothing to do with the pregnancy. I mean, can you imagine you're already a cuckold? You haven't even been married. Man. Because, you know, this was probably an arranged marriage. So he barely even knew, he would have barely even known Mary. And now he finds out she's pregnant. You can imagine the shame and embarrassment for Joseph. Now, in earlier times, Mary would have been immediately stoned to death. But these were Roman times, and Roman rule had put an end to such punishments. Nonetheless, as a man who is faithful to the law, in other translations, a righteous man, Joseph could not, in good conscience, go through with the marriage. Forget wedding prep. He now had to institute divorce proceedings. You see, if he had gone ahead and married, and married Mary, he would live the rest of his life under a cloud. For him to marry his fiancée, people would think that he was the father and therefore that he had committed fornication forever. He would be branded as that guy. And as far as Joseph was concerned, if he were to go through with the marriage, then he would be perpetuating a lie because then he would be saying, oh yeah, yeah, I did it, which was not true. And in doing that, he would have been condoning Mary's fornication, and infidelity. And even if he did want to marry her and forgive her, both Roman and Jewish law required that he divorce her for adultery. You can imagine the situation he was in. Personally humiliated, having to rectify the situation. But we are told in Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, that despite the pain of personal humiliation, he did not want to disgrace Mary publicly. See, this is what true righteousness is about. It is about reflecting the character of God who, in the midst of wrath, remembers mercy. 
And so he decides to divorce her quietly. You can think of it in our day as an out-of-court settlement, as it were. It was for him both a just and compassionate course of action. And you might say, yeah, sure, all done. Except for one major problem. Joseph divorcing Mary would have messed up God's plan of redemption. See, the whole point of Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 up to verse 17, was to establish that Jesus' legal claim to the throne of David rested on Joseph being his legal father. And you see that in verse 20. That's why Joseph is addressed, Joseph, son of David. That form of address reminds us that Jesus could legally claim the throne of David because of Joseph. Now, we are told in verse 25 that Joseph did marry her. He even waited until Mary had given birth before consummating the marriage to make sure that all of us know that he was not the father. And the implication of it, as Douglas Sean O'Donnell would say, is by accepting Mary as his wife and by naming her child, he officially bestowed upon Jesus the status of a descendant of David. So the question then is, what changed Joseph's mind? Why would he forever damage his reputation in the community? And what would lead him to give his name to a child who was not his own? In other words, what alleviated his turmoil and gave him peace? Well, look at verse 20. We are told that an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And I think we understand that. Given the circumstances, only a direct word from God could change his mind. Mary could say, say, swear on a stack of Bibles, I had nothing to do with it. And we'd all say, yeah, 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 shake the other leg. It's got bells on it. But here, the angel assures Joseph that Mary had not committed adultery. Verse 20. As hard as it is to believe, Mary's pregnancy had been brought about by the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, let me be very clear here. We don't know the mechanism the Holy Spirit used It is a supernatural mystery. What we do know is that Jesus was no ordinary baby. Jesus shares our humanity, but without the stain of sin that we inherited from Adam. At the same time, he is also fully God. And I think it's helpful to think about it the way the Creed of Chalcedon expressed this mystery. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach people to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead, 
and also perfect in manhood. Truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us according to the manhood. In all things, like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusably, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence. Not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, and only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning declared concerning Him, and the Lord Jesus Christ Himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. Now, if we were to unpack this, it would take several books and the rest of next year. It is a complex reality that is hard to fathom. But here's the bottom line. The Creed of Chalcedon seeks to unpack what this text is saying. God has acted on our behalf by becoming fully human. You see, the most amazing part of this story is not so much that Mary was a virgin and gave birth to a son. It is that God has not abandoned us in our sinfulness. See, the angel's words in verse 20, uh, verse 21, point us to the grim reality that has made Christmas necessary. Notice what it says. She will give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. There is a Christmas because you and I need a Savior. And the reality of it is that we don't truly understand how bad our plight is. See, during this time, the Jews thought of the Christ, the Messiah, as a conquering warrior who would defeat Israel's enemies, establish God's kingdom in Jerusalem, or in other words, make Israel great again. And that's why Matthew uses the title Christ sparingly. And we're no better. We tend to think of Jesus as an economic or political deliverer or our life coach. We've got this if-only script in our minds. My life would be better if only the government was changed. My life would be better if my kids were better behaved or my husband was better behaved or if I had a better job or better children or a better house. Da, 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 da. Let's understand, that's not what Jesus has come for. He's not come for our comfort. He's not come for our selfish desires. Jesus is the king who has come to threaten our self-rule. See, the root of our problems 
is that we are sinners in revolt against God's rightful rule so that we are under God's just condemnation. As the king of kings, he didn't merely come to overthrow petty kings. His coming is nothing less than the invasion of the kingdom of God into this present age. He has come to save us from our sinful rebellion against God and to bring us under his gracious and loving authority. And that is why here in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 16, Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Messiah is followed by Jesus' demand. If any man wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And that's the command, that's the challenge that is issued to each and every one of us. And it is legitimate for us to ask, so what right does he have to demand this? Well, it's answered in the text, verse 21. It is implicit in the name. He is Jesus. Jesus means Yahweh saves. That he, Jesus, will save his people from their sins means that Jesus is none other than Yahweh, God, the Lord himself, coming to save. In, citing, in, in this passage, Matthew is referencing Isaiah 45, verses 20 to 21, where God says, declare what is to be, present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it in the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's Yahweh. And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all ye ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. Jesus can demand, if any man wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, because he is king. He is Jesus. He is God who saves. And what is even more astounding is that this Jesus saves not by force of arms. He doesn't come like Iron Man with all his rockets blasting people. It's not by force of arms, but by arms outstretched on a Roman cross. See, Yahweh himself became man so that he may give his life for his people as the sacrifice and substitute for our sins. And that's why we celebrate Jesus as our peace. He has given his life to reconcile us to God. That's what grace is all about. That's what Christmas is all about. It is about God's mighty act of salvation, delivering us from the guilt and condemnation that our sins deserve. Delivering us from the bond, our bondage to sin. And if you are here and you haven't committed yourself to Jesus, our prayer is that you would submit to him here and now. You see, Jesus hasn't just come to bring personal salvation. 
as we pointed out last week, Matthew begins his book with this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah because he's wanting to tell us. He's referencing the creation account in Genesis 2 to tell us that the coming of the Messiah is a new beginning and it involves nothing less than the redemption of creation. The Messiah comes to bring the justice and peace of the kingdom of God. And the Apostle Paul points us to that hope in Romans chapter 8. It's flashed on the screen, I hope. I think. <laughs> Romans chapter 8, and if I can find it, verse 20 to 21. You look around you, you wonder, why is the world such a mess if God made such a beautiful creation? Well, here's the answer. For the creation itself was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. See, that's what peace, biblical peace, genuine shalom is all about. Right relationships, wholesome interconnectedness that causes all people to flourish. And no amount of political gerrymandering, maneuvering, education can do that. But by his death and resurrection, Jesus has brought about that new creation that will be consummated when he returns. In the meantime, we who are the servants of the king, the people of God, because we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we have the privilege of reflecting the beauty of that new creation because God has made us new as we live together in community. See, the church is the outpost of God's kingdom. It is a foretaste of heaven, holding out the hope of the new creation in the midst of this dark and sinful world. So in the language of Matthew, we are a city on a hill, salt and light in this earth. But then the question arises. I get that, RJ, but how can we be a foretaste of heaven when we are still sinners? Well, Answer is actually in the end of, at the end of Matthew when Jesus promises that he will be with us to the end of the age. You see, sin has separated us from God and in separating us from God, separated us from ourselves and from one another. Salvation results in God being with us. And that's why, go back to Matthew chapter 1, verse 22. Matthew says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, for Jesus to be Emmanuel, to be God with us, doesn't just mean that he's hanging out with us. 
It means that he brings in the promised age when God would always be with his people. It is the fulfillment of everything that the temple symbolized. And that abiding presence was what distinguished the people of God from all other people. And we see this as we read it in light of the rest of Scripture. Because by his death and resurrection, Jesus gives us free access to God. That's why when Jesus yielded up his spirit in Matthew 27, the temple curtain was torn because it was meant to say that the way to God is open because of Jesus' sacrifice. So the Christmas means that God himself is drawing us into an intimate, personal, transformative relationship with him. We know God and we are known by him. A few weeks ago, Dave Barker walked us through Psalm 139, which reminded us of the awesome privilege of God knowing us. And for the people of God, it is a bit disconcerting because you mean God knows me and all my sinfulness and all my flaws and all my failings? Absolutely. Because it is not a knowledge that judges you and me. This same God who knows you and me intimately also laid down his life for you and me. He hasn't stopped loving us despite knowing the worst about us. And he doesn't just accept us. He sacrificed himself for us so that we may be reconciled to him, so that we may be declared righteous in his sight. In fact, so that we may be adopted as his sons. And it's sons because we are joint heirs with Jesus. Men and women sharing in the inheritance that God has prepared so that the intimate knowledge of God of us is a comfort because Christ has come and reconciled us to God. And in the here and now, we can say God with us because the Holy Spirit dwells with us. Because Jesus has ascended to his Father's side, he has given us his spirit. The same spirit that caused Mary to conceive Jesus. And the spirit dwells in us because he is the one who has caused us to be born again. He is the one who caused the light of the gospel of the glory of God to shine in our hearts so that we may see the glory of Christ. So that we may trust in Jesus. And this same spirit dwells in us to empower us to live for Christ. He guides us day by day. And as Ephesians 2 would put it, he's made his home in us. And just as all of us would put our stamp on the homes that we live in, we'll renovate it, we'll change the wallpaper, we'll take out the garbage 
will change that abominable sink so that we will make it a home that is fit for our needs and desires that reflects our tastes. That's the same thing the Spirit is doing as He dwells in us. He is shaping our characters. He's convicting us of sin, bringing us to repentance, and assuring us of the pardon that we have because of Jesus' sacrifice. And the Spirit dwells in us to preserve us so that we would persevere in faith till the end. And the presence of the Spirit isn't just personal. It is personal, but it's also corporate. As Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, he is building us into a holy temple, the dwelling place of God by his Spirit, so that we experience God most fully, the Spirit's presence most fully in community. And that's what makes this gathering so significant, so important. It's not because Crestwick Chorus kids are great, and they are, or the music's great, or y'all are great. There's someone greater here with us. The Spirit of God is here, right here, right now. You know the best part of this? The Spirit's presence with us is glorious. But it is just a foretaste of what is to come. The Spirit is the first deposit of our inheritance. He is the guarantee. He is the engagement ring, if you will, of our inheritance. And so it tells us that our eternal future is to be with God for all eternity. Eye has not seen, nor has ear heard, nor has it entered the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. And I'm praying that our celebration of Christmas would point us to the hope of being forever in the presence of God, in whose presence is fullness of joy. And this is a sure and certain hope guaranteed to us by the death and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. And I pray that it would guide and shape our desires and our aspirations for the future. Our future is to be forever with the Lord, rejoicing in his presence, delighting in his goodness, experiencing his favor. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we realize that your thoughts are not our thoughts, your ways are not our ways. Your plans for us are far greater than we could ever imagine. To think that God, the infinite, eternal, sovereign of the universe 
who created the earth for his glory, would even want people like us is an astounding thought. But were you to put the nations all together and put them in a bucket, they would be less than a drop. And yet, out of the billions of people in, on this earth, you have chosen to love us. You have chosen to want us and to want us to spend eternity with you and to want us so much that you would send your son to lay down his life for us. God, we are not worthy of such grace. But we rejoice in your grace. We delight in your goodness. And we pray, Father, that as we celebrate the incarnation of the second person of the triune God this Christmas, you would help us to remember that you did it so that we may dwell with you forever, so that we, your people, may know the joy of having you as our God and being your people, that for all eternity we will experience fullness of joy. And we pray, Father, that as we recognize that you are the gift more precious than anything this world could offer, that you would sharpen our love for you, heighten our devotion, and cause us to see through the fakes that tempt us, that distract us, cause us to see all through all the clutter, to see the glory of this Christ who has given himself to us and who wants us to dwell with him forever. The supreme Christ's name, amen.